This is an ABC podcast. Hello, Lengitba. Good fellow morning. I'm Aggie Tupou and this is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Thank you for your company on this Thursday morning as we delve into what's on the show today. Fiji's government set to debate the Interpretation and Liquor Amendment Bill. Criticism over Solomon Islands Prime Minister Songovare's latest deals with China. And what in the blue water is happening in Fiji. Stay tuned to find out more. Malo atau mai bongbongini. I'm Aggie Tupou and this is Pacific Beat. You're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Scientists have collected fragments believed to belong to the first interstellar object known to have entered the Earth's atmosphere in Papua New Guinean waters. They say it could be the first sign of another civilization outside our own solar system. But there's controversy surrounding the expedition, with PNG authorities saying the researchers did not have the necessary permit, as Marion Farr reports. In 2014, a giant interstellar fireball landed in the ocean about 80 kilometres north of Manus Island in Papua New Guinea. Late last month, Professor Avi Loeb from Harvard University set out to recover its remains. We decided to go there on a ship that was fittingly called Silver Star. Using a magnetic sled, his team excavated debris from the ocean floor. Most of the material was volcanic ash, black powder. They used a fine mesh sieve to filter the ash and made the discovery they hoped for. That was a thrilling moment. I hugged the people around me when we found it. In total, the team collected more than 50 tiny objects known as spherules. The spherules are tiny spheres, metallic marbles, and they are a fraction of a millimetre in size. If proven to be from outside our solar system, it will be the first time humans have collected and studied interstellar material. Now back in the United States, Professor Loeb has three laboratories working on identifying the objects. I realised that even though it took FedEx a few days to deliver them to my home, Uh, It probably took millions or billions of years for them to arrive to Earth. He says it could be the first sign of an alien civilization. This meteor was moving at a speed of 60 kilometres per second outside the solar system, faster than 95% of all stars. So that suggests potentially that it could be a spacecraft from another civilization. The discovery has sparked excitement around the globe, but some Papua New Guinean officials have raised concerns about the research. Wilson Thompson, chairman of the PNG National Research Institute, says the group did not lodge a research permit application with his department. On its website, the NRI is listed as the only authority able to issue research visas in PNG. So we would have uh, expected them to have gone through the established process like uh, if they were coming in for research purposes, they would have applied for a research visa. Expedition coordinator Rob McCallum says his team engaged with the PNG government eight months before the expedition took place. We were advised that the best course of action was to supply a marine science research permit application because we're operating in the marine environment. But was that MSR application approved? Uh, It's in process at the moment. There was some more clarifications uh, yesterday. And so why did the research go ahead before the application had actually been approved or, or, or processed? 
I'm not sure how to. I'm not sure how to answer that. Mr McCallum says complexities with the application process arose from the unique nature of the research. This is the first time anybody has researched an object from interstellar space. So it hasn't fitted into any of the traditional uh, research mechanisms that, that people typically follow for a biological or geological science program. Officials from Manus province have also complained that they were not notified of the research. While the expedition area was just outside Manus waters, Acting Deputy Administrator Penua Pollan says the team should have made contact with his department. The protocol still applies because the last part of dispatch was Manus. But he acknowledged the complexity of the system. You see, we have a number of agencies performing the role of uh, administrating scientific research and Poor guys, they need to go to quite a number of them, so I understand why they um, skipped some of those um, national agencies. The Harvard research team has collaborated with the PNG University of Technology on the project. A letter from the university's vice-chancellor pledges full support for the expedition, saying the outcomes are likely to provide the most significant astronomical discoveries ever made. Rob McCallum says the expedition should be seen as a success. This project is of huge scientific value to the uh, astrophysicists around the world. This is going to potentially change our understanding of the universe around us. And I'm just so delighted that Papua New Guinea got a front seat at the table because the meteorite came down uh, just north of, of Manus Island. Robert McCullum, Expedition Coordinator from EYOS Expeditions, ending that report by Marion Farr. Solomon Islands Prime Minister Manasse Songavare has described as unfortunate nonsense the concerns voiced by Australia and the United States over moves to strengthen relations with China. Talia Aulietia has more. Solomon Islands Prime Minister Manasse Sogavare is on a week-long official visit to China and on Monday signed several diplomatic agreements, one of which was described as an implementation plan on policing, which will run until the end of 2025. It appeared to formalise an existing arrangement which has seen Chinese police based in Honiara in a training capacity but not active duty, though details of the new plan are yet to be made public. A spokesperson for Australia's Foreign Minister Penny Wong urged the two countries to immediately publish the plan, saying the Australian government was concerned it would invite regional contest into the region. The US Embassy in Canberra has echoed those calls for transparency. A spokesperson told the ABC the US respects the sovereignty of other nations to make their own decisions, but it's concerned at the expansion of the Chinese government's security and surveillance apparatus beyond its borders. Back in Beijing, Mr Sogavare told Phoenix TV he is aware of what other nations are saying. This is a business between you know, Solomon Islands and, uh, and, and, and in China, but we are fully aware of what these other countries are, are, are doing in the world and are saying, but it's just for a year to, to, you know, to listen to and add that, but we continue to strengthen our relationship between Solomon Islands and China. 
Mr Sogavari said the partnership with China is the way to go forward and described contrary views as unfortunate and nonsense. Solomon Islands and other Pacific Island countries are not backyard of any, any countries. We are sovereign nation and are capable of making our own decisions and we have made the right decisions and we have seen that partnership with, with your great country in China is the way to go forward. It is really unfortunate um, by this great great powers and all the nonsense that we are hearing is basically the misunderstanding of basically what China is doing. While the US and Australia have voiced concerns over China's increasing presence and influence in the Pacific and the prospect of Chinese military bases in the region, Mr Sogavare said China's interests in the region are benign. China has no other strategic interest other than, than in Taiwan and of course this, the South China Sea. And uh, any country in the world will not be comfortable if you start to intrude into areas that is seen as existential threat by any country. And China is no different. Solomon Islands Prime Minister Manasi Songovari in Beijing speaking to Chinese media there. Mr Songovari is expected to be in China until Saturday. And as Solomon Islands reporter Chris Narita Almanuliong told the world's Beverly O'Connor, Mr Songovari's visit to Beijing is also raising eyebrows back home. Um, no doubt there are talks on um, corporations such as health, trade, um, infrastructure, as well as people-to-people links and um, police cooperation. But that's back in, in China, back here in Honiara. There are some eyebrows being raised um, at a video that's being circulated um, on Mr. Sogavari's, upon Mr. Sogavari's arrival into China and saying, I'm back at home. And in fact, you know, the United States is the latest country to come out. They've joined Australia in asking for greater transparency about what this agreement says. Um, Has Mr Sogavare made any comment? Um, not yet, Bev. Um, in fact, we, I can only tell you that the leader of opposition has also joined in in asking the government for more transparency when it comes to uh, these engagements. Now, some official government officials have also um, uh, told me that there is a whiff of um, uh, hypocrisy um, coming from Australia with regards to transparency um, in terms of how they handle um, the AUKUS deal agreement. Uh, They've in fact um, claiming that uh, the Australian government did not make any, um, uh, uh, they did not let the Pacific family know of this deal, um, uh, referring to the Pacific Islands uh, Forum Secretariat. Um, But for now, we are yet to hear from Mr. Sogavare or his government. You know, as you pointed out, these are top-level meetings between the leaders of two countries. There's nothing unusual in that. What is your sense on the ground, though, how people in the Solomons are feeling about these deals? Hmm. In fact, that's the million-dollar question. You know, it's about the people. Um, these engagements that takes that take place out of the country or these partnerships, it bo- it comes down to the tail end of the people here in Solomon Islands. And although we haven't seen much reaction yet, as it's too early at this stage, we've seen some reactions on social media. Um, but of course, um, as you know, 80% of Solomon Islands population is outside of Solomon. Island. 
Island's capital of Honiara, so we cannot really uh, judge uh, based on what's on social media. But we have seen a lot of reactions, mostly from our traditional partners, Australia, United States. Um, in the past few days, there are more reactions from them than the people um, here. But it'll probably take a few weeks before what we call here coconut news actually spreads around and people will be aware there'll be questions and reactions on what these engagements might look like, what it will mean for an average Solomon Islander, Bev. Yeah. You know, we last spoke, uh, Chris and Rita, when Mr. Sogavara had his first press conference in quite some time. Do you think once he gets back from China, he'll do another one? Well, we're hoping um, that that is what will happen. Um, the, they're expected to return towards um, the later um, later this weekend, and we're hoping that we will get that opportunity to ask Prime Minister Sogavari um, these questions. Um, and if that eventually does happen, Bev, um, it will be Prime Minister Sogavari's second press conference in a span of two months, and um, in four years of, uh, for him to. Uh, you know, directly talk to the media. But uh, definitely, Bev, um, we're suspecting that this press conference, if it eventually does happen later on in the week, it'll be one that will be very closely watched um, by Canberra. And that was Solomon Islands reporter Chris Narita Almanuleong speaking there to Beverly O'Connor on The World. This is Pacific Beat. Fiji's parliament is set to debate two bills tomorrow that have sparked lots of public debate. One is about removing the requirement for married women to change their birth certificate names to be allowed to vote. The second is about reducing the hours of nightclubs and a move to reduce early morning violence and public drunkenness. Shamima Ali is the head of the Fiji Women's Crisis Centre. She joins me now with that I say Buluvinaka. Bula. Bula Shamima. Uh, look, we want to start off with the debate of the Interpretation Amendment Bill. I mean, can you explain the current requirement? And why is it that women need to change their name on their birth certificate once married? Um, well, that is uh, the, 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 uh, the law says now, the, the Electoral uh, Voters uh, Registration of Voters Act. Uh, it requires Fijians, when applying for registration as a voter, to provide, among other things, the applicant's full name as specified on their birth certificate and to provide a copy of their birth certificate. Uh, before this, Fijians could apply and be registered as a voter under an adopted name, including a family name adopted on marriage or any other name by which they like to be known, provided they could establish their identity <coughs> without formally recording a change. Uh, so, uh, this, uh, and, 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 uh, so this has caused... Uh, you know, particularly around elections last year, caused a lot of havoc among, in women's lives, and it particularly impacts on women, because you know, culturally, women uh, often uh, change their names to their husband's name on marriage. When they're uh, you know legally married, they change their names to their husband's name. So that means that all the documents after that, their, their passports, their bank stay, uh, bank accounts, everything else follows that. So this law very. Um, <clears throat> you know, immediately before the elections, required women to change all of that, uh, that, that they could own. And on the, uh, on the birth certificate is their father's name, the family name before getting married, uh, their birth name. So they had, it required them, if they wanted to vote, to either use their family name, uh, 
or to to change to put down their husband's name if they were using that uh, on their birth certificates and that was quite ridiculous because you know uh, that's their birth name and uh, it was ridiculous to change it to their husband's name so they had to and that required them that if they did that then they would have to change all their other names on all their uh, other documents that they have got you know even if uh, the title of the houses the cars whatever whatever documents they required and <clears throat> It was difficult for women to do that. It, you know, uh, infringed on their rights as citizens, their voting rights, etc. Uh, and uh, uh, so, yeah, so that that's what happened last year, and it was quite ridiculous. And women had to actually go through, you know, jump a lot of hoops uh, to be able to vote. Uh, and many women didn't vote because uh, they. Uh, you know, they couldn't be bothered standing in line to go and change their names. And those women who wanted to vote and said, well, we'll just vote with our birth certificate name, uh, you know, they, they, they had a lot of uh, difficulties uh, with their husbands where, you know, where they did not have much rights within the marriage and so on. It created conflict there also. And uh, this also impacted on a lot of women, uh, you know, in the rural areas. We are a maritime country, so in the maritime areas and so on. Yeah, Shamima, I mean, look, a lot of this does come down to just elections, voting, and your organisation with Women's Crisis Centre, you know, you took part of the public consultations. I mean, again, if you don't mind elaborating more about the challenges Mm -hmm. that women do face in following this law. Okay, so, well, one is, you know, realising women's uh, burdens, uh, the the amount you know uh, the uh, to be to go to a, a, a registry and change their birth certificate name and so on, uh, they had to go and stand in line. A lot of people didn't know they had to do that, uh, and so on. Uh, and a lot of the yeah, so um, they uh, p- placed quite significant burdens on married women. It also threatened married women's legal and political rights. You know they, uh, that the, democratically they could not go and vote if they did not change the name. The burden was on them rather than everybody else because it's women who change their names. And we also saw that this, these new laws served no legitimate purpose, and it was there was no rhyme or reason around it. And they also the new laws breached CEDAW and human rights international norms of women's rights to vote and so on. You know we have signed on to CEDAW uh, and and so on. So yeah, so. <clears throat> That and what if women just didn't want to change their names, uh, you know? So women like like well myself, I've always used my maiden name, but I had to go and add on my maiden name. Because sometimes, a lot of times, we just have our uh, first name and this and the and the middle name. But I'm known as Shamima Ali. Ali is my father's, you know, my family name. Uh, so and not my husband's name. So I had to go and add on the Ali to my name, to my first name and my middle names. So, you know, for me, it was easier because I could go to a, in Suva to a central place and go and do it. But still, it placed a burden on me to go and do that, you know, for no reason whatsoever. For many other women who are disadvantaged and so on, it created havoc for them. And, and, and that is why we made submissions. We also, seven women, we supported seven women with Fiji Women's Rights Movement. We supported seven women to challenge challenge this, this in court. And to date, uh, you know, we, it's over a year now, uh, we haven't had anything back from the courts. Yeah, well, so I mean, now it's what's, on debate here. 
What's mm-hmm. the actual argument for keeping it as it is? I mean, do you think it's valid? I mean, you've got there the Minister for Women saying, you know, the time is now to change it. What would the change mean for women in Fiji? Well, again, we will, those of us who did, those women who did change, they will have to, you know, then make a choice of changing it back or keeping it as it is. Because I know women who went and changed, uh, which is ridiculous. And that is why there is no reason for us to retain it. There is no argument. I don't know what is going to be debated tomorrow, uh, but uh, we, we don't see any reason why, you know, that there, there is no debate around this. Uh, so a lot of women, um, you know, had to change. They had a lot of difficulties. They went and changed, put down in their birth name, their husband's name, so they would not have to change uh, all the um, uh, documents. Those who did uh, who did use their birth name had to then change all the after-marriage documents that they had, including their passports, including including all of that. So, uh, so if they did that, I don't I, I don't see how women. Uh, unless, you know, would choose to, again, go back and redo all those things. Mm -hmm. But many women didn't. So I think for them, it would be okay. It will help a lot of women who did not do that. Thank you for that. Hey, you're listening to Pacific Beat, and my guest is Shamima Ali, head of the Fiji Women's Crisis Centre. Uh, she joins me now to talk about two bills tabled for debate in Fiji's parliament tomorrow. Let's go over to the other bill, which is the Liquor Amendment Bill. Um, that seeks to reduce nightclub hours so they close at 1am rather than the current 5am. Can you share with us what impact that would have if the change hours have in regards to early morning violence and even public drunkenness. Yes. Uh, look, even this this law came into being, you know, with the last uh, government that we had. And again, we did not see any rhyme or reason unless it was benefiting the night, nightclub owners. It was It's in their favour. It does not benefit us at all, the community at, at large at all. Because as you said, we have issues. We have an alcohol problem, not only in Fiji, but around the Pacific. I'll talk about Fiji. We have an alcohol problem. Um, And there are a lot of, uh, within homes, there are lots of conflicts around money that is spent on alcohol and kava and so on, and alcohol. And when, you know, when uh, nightclubs are open, given the patriarchal, uh, you know, uh, system we have in our country, it's mostly the men who are out there, our young people, the youth, and so on. And so that's time spent away from home that creates conflicts, domestic violence, and so on, exacerbates the situation of poverty in our country. And uh, and also we have an, an increasing issue of drugs, uh, drugs other than marijuana and, and uh, you know, things like other drugs that are being uh, circulated within and sold and pushed around in nightclubs. So that, again, that gives, you know, that, uh, 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 that increases the chances of that happening. We have gang violence, youth issues, brawls, a lot of violence and so on. So, you know, uh, for us, uh, for, for people who have thought about it, people who are involved, uh, you know, in, in, in like we are on, on gender-based violence mm-hmm. issues, but also social problems around, you know. So for us, that is a good thing. And we just really, again, once again, we don't see any reason why. Uh, you know, we should have nightclubs closing at 5 a.m. and so on. 1 a.m., which used to be before, suits us better. I mean, of course, uh, your thoughts in regards to some nightclub owners who are worried about the economic impacts, and they say Mm. that a greater police presence could actually address the issues being faced. Mm. Yes or no? Mm -hmm. Not at all. I mean, police have other things to do. I mean, already... 
you know, uh, the police force is stressed uh, in, in terms of, uh, you know, what they can do. We have increasing crime rates of other types, uh, violence against women, girls and children, uh, how, how home break-ins and things like that. So, you know, and that's extra money going to, uh, you know, to for, for this kind of an issue, which is quite useless for us. Uh, and so, you know, I, we don't buy into that argument at all because they still make their money. 1 a.m. is a good enough time. Mm, Shamima, just want to say Vinaka Vakalebu, thank you very much for your time this morning. Thank you. Thank you, thank you so much. Bye-bye. That was Shamima Ali, head of the Fiji Women's Crisis Centre, talking to me there. And Fiji's parliament is set to debate these issues tomorrow. Up next, we'll have our news wrap with Talia here on Pacific Beat. Natural disasters can take many forms. A flood, cyclone, tsunami, fire or earthquake can mean you need to leave your home quickly. If a disaster strikes your home, you need to be prepared. If you live somewhere that is prone to natural disasters, a bag filled with essential items could save your life. This bag is called a go bag. Inside your go bag, you should have the things you need to survive. Water, food, medicine, copies of precious documents, a wish to alert emergency services, toiletries including menstrual hygiene packs, a radio, first aid kit, blankets and protective clothing, hand sanitizer, light, tools like knives and can openers, garbage bags. If you make a gold bag, tell your friends and family. Disasters may be inevitable, but the loss of your life or your family are not. Welcome back to Pacific Beat. Uh, now we are joined by the beautiful Talia Aulitia, who's joining us uh, to share the latest in our news wrap. With that, good morning. Good morning, Aggie. <laughs> uh, the Chinese embassy, though, there in Tonga, looks like they're not happy with the nuclear watchdog's report on this Fukushima release. Yeah, that's right. And I don't think they're the only ones who are not happy. But Matangi Tonga reports that Chinese diplomats in the country are critical of Japan's plans and have rejected the conclusions made by the International Atomic Energy Agency in their report report, which the Chinese diplomats say was released hastily. In a media statement issued from the Embassy of the People's Republic of China in the capital, Nukualofa, they say the report failed to fully reflect the views from the experts who participated in the reviews and that the conclusion was not shared by all the experts, adding in the statement that the IAEA report failed to answer the question of what impact the long-term accumulation and concentration of radionuclides will bring it to the marine environment, food safety and people's health. The diplomats in Tonga urged Japan to stop pushing forward with their discharge plan um, for them to dispose of the wastewater in a safe and transparent manner and to faithfully fulfil their moral responsibilities and obligations under international law. Thank you for that. Uh, so much, yeah. <laughs> It's our own backyard. Why do they want to choose Pacific Ocean? Uh, look, Vanuatu's Melanesian Arts and Culture Festival 
it's going to be smoke-free. Yes, indeed it will. The Daily Post is reporting that the announcement was made by MacFest's health committee that all festival venues will be designated smoke-free zones. The decision was confirmed this week and even the carver booths within the festival site and during the four-day Melanesian Music Festival event will adhere to this smoke-free regulation. The smoking ban aligns with the existing Tobacco Act in Vanuatu, which prohibits smoking in public places. Um, There will, however, be designated smoking areas set up for the smokers and also to ensure good health across the festival, food stall owners require proper certification to operate um, and sell their goods with training sessions being held to ensure high standards of food handling take place with the committee emphasising that the meat sold by vendors must be obtained through bush kill. And of course, it is a huge um, festival, the first one back since the pandemic. I was in Vanuatu a week ago and literally everyone that I spoke to was like, are you staying here for this festival? And I was like, I wish I was because it's going to be huge. Um, So not only are lots of people around Vanuatu coming to it, but of course, lots of people from different Melanesian countries. So the health committee has also notified about the current um, high illnesses in Vanuatu, including malaria, uh, malaria rather, leptospirosis and influenza and and making sure that everyone is safe and healthy during the festival, which promises to be a lot of fun. I wish I was there. (laughs) I I have to ask, though, the food in Vanuatu? Oh, don't get me started. (laughs) (laughs) Good? It's so good. Oh. I actually tweeted saying, can someone please let me host a show that just goes around and eats specific food? Not for anyone's it interest, but like my own stomach, and I would love it. <laughs> Beautiful. Uh, look, and uh, I'm pretty happy about this one. Uh, redemption for the New South Wales Blues and State of Origins Game 3. What's the latest there? You'll hear as this Nova Castrian explains what happens last night that I also am very happy about it. Um, New South Wales have somewhat redeemed themselves, avoiding the white Wash by beating Queensland by 14 points in last night's game. Game three, State of Origin, 24 points to 10. I love how excited we are when we obviously have lost the series. But as a Blues fan, we will take anything. Um, three tries in 10 minutes in the first half by Brian Toll, Bradman Best and Josh Adokar laid the foundation for the Blues win, win rather, and sent them into halftime with a solid lead. Best then scored his second try midway through the second half in Ensuring New South Wales avoided the misery of becoming just the fifth origin side to suffer the clean sweep in over 40 years. Queensland already brags too much. We didn't need to give them that as well. Of course, Queensland still had lots um, to celebrate about winning the series two games, uh, two games, um, to one. Um, and, you know, despite the dead rubber, more than 75,000 supporters turned up to watch the game. I say it's the last game that wins that really tells you who really the does is. matter. That's all we need to report who cares on today. About the other <laughs> games in the series. It's just about the last one. That's it. Appreciate your time, Talia. Thank you so much for our news wrap. Thanks, Aggie. Uh, that, of course, is news wrap for another day. I'm Aggie. This is Pacific Beat. Love sport? Tune in to Can You Be More Pacific with Sarah Nangama and Dean Halatau. I don't think it was wrong that he said that he didn't want to come to the Dragons. Truth is, players have preferences. As a player, if I was asked, you know, the five Super W clubs here in Australia where I want to go, I know what my first preference is and I also know what my last preference is. Which is it? <laughs> Sorry, I'm not about to be on rugby.com tomorrow. <laughs> Can You Be More Pacific? Thursdays from 6 PNG time on ABC Radio Australia.
I'm Aggie Tabon. This is Pacific Beat. Fiji is known for its tropical beauty and pristine waters, but earlier this week, Suva's Walu Bay turned an unnatural shade of bright blue. Worried locals alerted authorities fearful that a major environmental catastrophe was unfolding. It turned out to be blue ink that had been spilled from a nearby loading dock. Environment authorities are now investigating, as Lide Movono reports. People returning home after work on Monday alerted environmental authorities when they saw bright blue spots in the Walube River, which divides the central business district from the industrial segment of Suva City. Former school teacher Sele Tangivuni was alarmed. Now this makes me mad today to see this bluish water pollution here uh, that hope probably coming out of one of those factories up there. It has turned the whole um, frontage here uh, blue, really look bluish, the whole lot, from all those beyond those mangrove trees right down, and uh, it's uh, coming through to the ocean here. It's a very sorry state, the ecological damage here. The ink had spread into the Suva Harbour, which houses Fiji's main port and is a regular fishing ground to the coastal communities of the peninsula. Fiji's Assistant Environment Minister, Sakiusa Tumbuna, said the ink spill occurred at the Swaya Shipping Depot. I understand that uh, Swaya Shipping were trying to remove uh, drums. There was an incident, not a forklift, uh, accidentally damaged two drums, causing the ink uh, spillage. The team there were trying to control the spill and uh, some spills went into the drain which is connected to the river behind uh, the office. The minister said the Department of Environment immediately worked with health authorities on Monday to control impact to humans. An investigation into possible breaches of Fiji's Environmental Management Act is currently underway. The Department of Environment is, is undertaking that. There are staff uh, that are not responsible for it. Uh, we will be undertaking this, but uh, at the same time, yeah, we understand also there might be some gaps there in terms of uh, capacity and government is trying to strengthen this. While we have uh, another budget will be approved uh, maybe on Friday, then there will be more uh, no recruitment uh, for, uh, for staff. Swire Shipping Regional Manager Alex Patterson confirmed the incident but insisted the chemical was not toxic. He said the company was cooperating with government investigators. For now, though, much of the ink seems to have disappeared with the tide. Assistant Minister Tumbuna said Fiji's government would upgrade its ability to enforce environmental protection laws. Lide Movono and Suva reporting there. And while they wait for a comprehensive report regarding the incident, Fiji's Ministry of Health has a precautionary measure advising the public to refrain from any contact with the water near the affected area. This includes swimming, fishing or any other activities that involve direct contact with the water. They say it is likely that aquatic life, flora and fauna in the water system will be impacted. The Ministry of Health assures the public that they are closely monitoring the situation and working in collaboration with the Ministry of Environment and other relevant authorities to address this issue promptly and effectively. Australia's health care sector has a serious problem when it comes to waste. 
That's because it is heavily reliant on single-use plastics. In Queensland, one hospital has been working with volunteer groups to recycle over 50 tonnes of reusable medical equipment, redirecting it to Pacific communities. Melissa Macon has the story. If you consider yourself a little bit clumsy or injury-prone, you've probably had to use a moon boot or crutches at one point in your life. But do you remember where you sent them when you were done? In many cases, crutches end up in landfill. They are one of many items that Australian manufacturers deem single-use, and it's incredibly wasteful. We're very privileged in Australia, particularly Queensland, because we do have very strict rules around how we use consumables and actually how we buy them, because you'll notice on a couple of these that they'll have the number two through them. There was a number two and a line through them, and that means that that manufacturer has sold it to us as a single-use item, so there's no opportunity to reuse them in, a, in our healthcare systems. But it does seem like a waste to throw something like this instrument out at the end of that single-use, because single-use might just be picking it up and, you know, cutting a suture. That's Renee McBrien. She is a radiographer and the sustainability officer at Queensland Children's Hospital. But every consumable that you see inside a hospital these days has an expiry date on it, so it's similar to food. It has a manufacturing date and then it will have a length of lifespan on a shelf of a hospital. And if we miss the opportunity that we can't use it um, in that specific area and it goes out of date, then that becomes expired and we can't use it in our hospital. And that's when we convert it then into a donation. She's waging a war on waste in her workplace and has had some fantastic results so far. And then of course we've got our hucktails here as well. So these hucktails they are manufactured for single use and they are literally used for a surgeon who's preparing for an operation. When they've done their surgical scrub down of their hands, they dry them specifically with this 100% cotton lint-free towel and it's, they can't use paper towel at that point. So what we do with those huck towels is we literally wipe clean hands on them and then that would normally go in the bin. So we've set up, up in our operating theatres, drop zones so our surgeons don't have to think too far and walk too far out of that s- sterile zone, capturing these and then we literally bag them up and send them in for the birthing baby kits. So it's you're looking at a resource not as a waste product anymore. It's about how we can actually connect what we're doing in this hospital to help other communities in the Pacific Island. That's where Patricia Deer comes in. Patricia is the chair of Rotary's Bribie Island Satellite Club for Environmental Repurposing and she's worked throughout the Pacific. When she retired and came home to Brisbane, she felt compelled to continue her aid and volunteer work in the region. I worked as an aid advisor in the um, health and corporate services areas in the islands. The Ministries of Health in uh, the Solomons and the Department of Health in uh, Papua New Guinea and also the Department of Finance and Department of Works in Papua New Guinea but um, really just seeing how things worked over there made me realise that um, whilst a lot of these countries are beautiful they're they're very deficient in um, their medical services and the the great divide between um, provincial areas and the metropolitan areas is is so huge that getting supplies out to the the Pacific Islands was just an absolute must do. Rotary environmental repurposing teams sort, categorise and pack tonnes of donated supplies into 40-foot shipping containers every month. In the past year, 19 containers filled with vital medical and educational equipment have been received by countries including Tonga, Fiji, Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands and Timor-Leste. The donations can include gloves, reading glasses, crutches, wheelchairs and even furniture and beds.
They send us a wish list. So what we try and do is find as many things on that wish list as possible to put into the container, first of all. We can also advise them on other items that we have available uh, in the shed, and that might be a pallet full of, of masks, just face masks or a pallet full of gloves um, and that sort of thing. And they don't sometimes even think about the very basic stuff. They think high level. But, of course, the everyday items that are used for medical services are as essential as any uh, of the, the big-ticket items, as I, as I call them. The other day, somebody brought in two uh, oxygenation machines that are portable, and they can be charged up on site and then taken away if they're going to pick up a patient, and they're worth $15,000 each. Mm. So a hospital was going to put them out. It's amazing. They were absolutely fine. So we do try and find a new life for things, such as the, um, the hover mats that become emergency stretchers, and you know, they are provided to us in their thousands. Rotary volunteer and president of the East New Britain Queensland Association, Elsie Lee, works alongside Patricia. She says donations are a godsend for many people in her home community of Rabal. Health facilities in the remote areas is non-existence. I remember going to Rabaul and delivering at the Nonga Hospital and we were in the maternity ward. Uh, the first thing I asked them, what do you really need today if you wanted us to bring from Australia? The sister in charge said, gloves. And it hit me that they didn't have gloves. They don't really have anything. The cost of buying a new Equipment or anything to assist them is over the roof. It cost about 600 to 800 kina for a wheelchair. And by Rotary donating all these uh, equipment that are earmarked for the tip, this is just a godsend for our people. Remote areas, they suffer. They don't even get anything from the government. They're left to their own means. So by doing this in a small way, we're making a difference to people's lives. And that was Rotary Volunteer and President of East New Britain, Queensland, Elsie Lee, speaking to Melissa Macon. And that brings us to the end of Pacific Beat. I'll be back at the same time tomorrow. That's at 6am PNG time. You can also hear us again this afternoon at 3pm PNG time. Stay tuned to ABC Radio Australia, though, because news is next. And then Jacob Maguire with Nisha Daily. Uh, You can also follow us on Facebook. Find and like the ABC Pacific page. I'm Aggie Tupou Otoa Thanks for your company.